Sarah and Song try to make a podcast. Take two. (laughs) (laughs) 45 minutes later, take two. This is Song. And this is Sarah. And you're listening to Effing Ethical, a podcast about impactful consumption. First, some introductions. My name is Sarah Schaff, and I'm an environmental scientist, a recent MBA, um, and my focus is on how companies, organizations, and investors can be more respectful or kind of most respectful of human rights, uh, especially in the social impact and international development spaces. So my name is Song Kim, and I am also a newly minted MBA from the Yale School of Management, where Sarah and I met. Uh, But before coming back to school, I was a lawyer representing survivors of forced labor. And in the human rights-based anti-trafficking field that I come from, um, we've come to understand and started talking about how the greatest strides that we can make towards eradicating modern slavery uh, was by getting getting it out of our global supply chains. Um, And the reasons why our clients were ending up in these situations where they were vulnerable to being uh, manipulated and coerced into exploitative and abusive situations um, was because labor supply chains and legal systems and um, all of the other systems that were created were created to support um, capitalism and, and profit maximization rather than a shared prosperity for everyone. So um, because I wanted to understand all of those systems a little bit better, um, I decided to come and get my MBA. And um, yeah. It's it's been a it's been a fun journey. Um, and the the complexity of those systems you just described, I think, is really what kind of what our podcast is about, like what we wanted to talk about and start to explore. Um, so the idea here is that we would have nuanced conversation about how all these things intersect, how environmental impact, social impact, human rights, supply chain diversity and inclusion efforts, corporate governance, and basically everything consumers sort of think about um, or might expect from companies they support when they look at like, what what does it mean to be or to have ethical practices? Um, Does that sound right to you? (laughs) Yeah. And I think one of the themes of our podcast is that there are no, you know, there are no good businesses. There are no bad businesses. Everyone sort of lies on a spectrum um, between the black and the white. And uh, we wanted to highlight how, you know, corporate uh, practices could be made better, but how consumers can be empowered to help make those changes as well. Yeah, I love that idea of the um, kind of like a, a continuum. And it kind of sucks because it's so, it's it would be so much easier if there was just a list, right? Like, you know, my friends that know my background and what I'm interested in, they're always saying like, you know, well, just tell me where to shop or like, tell me what to buy. I'm like, well, it's like, it's not that simple, but I've also never thought about like how we might make it at least clearer, if not simple, right? Like it's a nuanced conversation, but there might be a clearer way to kind of explain it um, or, or to understand it, which hopefully we can, we can do through these conversations. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Um, there is no simple, and I think that's really the beauty of it almost. One of my favorite things about 
um, my friendship with you, Sarah, is the fact that we can sit for hours and just talk about all of the the nuances and the complexities. Um, and I think, I hope what will come through um, over the course of our podcast is just how much there is to think about um, when we're making decisions. And um, I hope that it's not going to lead to, you know, decision paralysis or anything like that. But um, yeah, we hope that it's going to be a journey together uh, into, yeah, figuring out a way to, uh, I don't know, make make decisions um, easier, make decisions, help make decisions that are, are better. Yeah, exactly. I think that that's uh, at least what we hope. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or, or who knows? Uh, why don't we kind of jump into like what brought us today like why are we starting this and kind of what the topic is so what we wanted to start with is like kind of why now why in this moment why did we take these you know private conversations or even academic conversations we've been having and want to move it into um, a consumer focused podcast and uh, what we've kind of observed a, a piece of the massive movement growing around in support of Black Lives Matter is how kind of a company's corporate accountability or corporate res- social responsibility or their labor practices or their environmental impact or their supply chain factor in that Black Lives Matter conversation. And it's really, at least for me, it's so cool to see people kind of interested in that you know corporate accountability piece and they're kind of they're like thinking differently about what are they consuming and who are they buying from and what are they supporting um which is so important and really cool to see that like this uh like important you know global movement is is pushing people into taking this seriously so i just wanted to preface all of this by saying that i am not black yes i'm a woman of color I identify as Korean and Asian American, and I have both privileges along some of my identity dimensions, and I face oppression in others. And everything that I say will be from my perspective, and I'm still learning, and I'm still growing, and I won't always say the right things. Thanks, Song. Um, and just to you know, kind of echo that, I am also not Black. I'm a white, educated, Christian American woman with all of the privileges that that incorporates. And I'm still in my own kind of eternal process of understanding how I've benefited from that privilege and how I can continue to change my own external work to be most inclusive. And on that note, we would love to invite you to our own accountability mechanism, which we will be talking about a lot through many of our episodes and how important they are in holding institutions and individuals uh, accountable for their actions. So please email us at hello at songandsarah.com. That's S-O-N-G-A-N-D-S-A-R-A.com. And also check out our website, songandsarah.com, where we will have podcast notes. And for this episode, we'll have an expanded list of resources from the Black educators and activists that we ourselves are learning from. One of the first things that I wanted to talk about, just because it so stuck out to me, um, and this is this is a trend in um, kind of some other circles, but I think in the um, like sustainable company circles, um, it was kind of interesting. And that was mm. um, the case about reformation, right? Mm. Like I, as someone who's 
you know, interested in these topics and love that there are companies who are making money in sustainable fashion kind of making mm. it trendy. Um, I think like that's great. And I'm so happy that there's companies doing that. And so I've you know, paid attention to Reformation for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I think it was really easy for everybody to look at Reformation and say like, oh, that's a good company. Like they right. are sustainable, blah, blah, blah. Um, but what, you know, recent times have brought to light is like just being environmentally sustainable doesn't make you a good company. Mm. Yeah. And that's so tough because, right, as you said, we have this tendency to want to support and especially, right, environmentally sustainable brands that are women-led. And um, there's so many reasons why we gravitate towards and we want to root for companies. Um, And then when youth like this of the company being racist comes out, I feel like a little bit of us... um, I don't know where we get, we're disappointed in some way. Um, I, I do want to say though that, you know, we're not calling out reformation just for, you know, uh, kind of, we're not singling them out or anything like that. Um, it just so happens that when you do put yourself out as being sustainable and when you um, make it public that you have good business practices, you are inviting public scrutiny, right? And that's both for the companies to benefit from by signaling to and attracting loyal customers like ourselves um, who are willing to pay that premium to support good brands. Um, But then they should also be willing to let themselves be held to a higher standard um, and held accountable, I think, by consumers. Yeah. And I think that kind of a, a, a piece of kind of this, I don't know, transitions, the right word, but Um, you know, kind of what do companies do then? And I think one of the things we wanted to talk about is like, you know, what does it mean for companies to, to change, to make meaningful change, right? Right now is kind of a moment where there's a lot of organizations saying, we, we recognize what, how we've been complicit, like they might overtly say that, um, or, you know, say something a little less specific, but like, what does it mean? Like, what's the difference between making a novel commitment and like meaningful change. And right now for some of, for a lot of these organizations, like they're at the beginning of it, right? Like, but what does that mean in the grand scheme of things? Right, there's such a big difference between um, pledging money towards anti-racist causes um, and declaring that your company will be anti-racist and actually transitioning these entrenched systems of racism that are within your corporation. Like that's not something that happens overnight. It's not something that happens with a statement. Um, although they, those are very good starts, and um, I'm so heartened to see see that those first steps happening. Um, so I was thinking about this, and you know, since corporations are considered people, you know, thank you, Citizens United. Um, <laughs> instead of using that for evil, why not use it for good? This is the world that we live in, so why not use that for good? Um, and I'm hopeful, and I hope to see companies um, now starting to be a little bit more activist and supporting policies that are aimed at dismantling racism on a systemic level. Um, I hope that they will start choosing to pay a living wage, right? Um, That they will take on practices like hiring based on work experience rather than, um, than background or something like that. You know, to your point, Sarah, about how, you know, there are companies that are kind of starting out um, and they're just now right, for the first time putting out these statements and starting to engage in the work initially. And I think there are other companies like 
Ben and Jerry's, right, which has been an activist brand for such a long time. Even they have so much work to do in increasing representation of Black employees and um, within their supply chain and things like that. So it's a long haul. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful yeah. that things will change for the better. Um, and I think one of the things that I'm that gives me hope in general, that's very connected to kind of all the conversations we'll have, but this as well is um, like, it feels like, and you know, I, I don't have data behind this, but like millennials, which we both are, and Gen Z, like can really see through like what we've called greenwashing in like mm. the environmentally sustainable industry, but any type of just sort of like general commitment as opposed to a commitment to meaningful change. And I think mm. that like exactly like what you just said, if an organization says, you know, we're going to, you know, donate to this organization out of our, you know, CSR fund, community social responsibility fund or, or whatever, right. like that's great, but that's yeah. totally different than saying we are going to look at how our organization is run. Right. Yeah. Um, like completely different. And I think that really brought up the topic for us about um, supply chain, a holistic perspective in a company that's, you know, actively anti-racist. They're looking at what does it mean to be respectful of black and brown lives throughout our supply chain? Yeah, absolutely. Um, supply chains, I mean, it's my favorite topic. And <laughs> We'll talk more about it in depth um, in the next episode. But um, today, you know, we just wanted to highlight how uh, racial justice in the corporate world goes, you know, so much beyond um, just the surface level things and just how to kind of give you a, a taste into just how deep um, this work should go. Um, because unfortunately, right, like everything else from whether it's climate change, health crises, um, the, the negative impacts really of global supply chains and the complexities and, and the way things are right now significantly disproportionately affects Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And so we wanted to um, just sort of dig into that a little bit um, before we continue the conversation next week. Yeah, and I think, I mean, a great place to start, which thankfully a lot of people are talking about, which again, like I'm always shocked and maybe this is Maybe I shouldn't be, right? Maybe I should be more optimistic and a little bit less critical of like the American consumer on whole. But um, I think that the the conversations, the the breadth of conversations around the use of prison labor in the US um, has really surprised me, like in a in a good way. I mean, mm. I think that I've listened to like three different podcasts that I regularly listen to that have talked about the presence of prison labor in the US and kind of what it is, which I was, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, it really is. Um, and I'm glad I'm glad the public in general is talking more about it because I feel like um, any sort of real information or specific, you know, data that companies are putting out about where their labor is coming from, I mean, it's so opaque. Like we, there's we we don't know how much of um, you know, different companies labor comes from um, from prison labor, right? Like in order for there to be any real meaningful change, it has to be something that everyone is talking about and that there is a sustained kind of effort towards um, changing. Sometimes 
our minds go immediately to maybe you know private prisons, but I, I think the conversation is a lot broader than that. Um, and I just want to you know highlight that prison labor it's the cheapest form of labor in the U.S. and the, you know the United States Constitution like allows it to be that way. And it's so it's messed up, but that's the way our um, our world is formulated at the moment. Um, they are right vastly underpaid, and they don't have access to the labor rights that all other laborers have. And so that's what makes this really problematic, even if it is, you know, quote unquote legal. Something else that I wanted to highlight and sort of make this connection between prison labor and the anti-racism work that needs to happen is, again, going back to, to policy. Um, so I don't know if you all have heard of the American Legislative Exchange Council. It's a very kind of, um, uh, I don't know, like a flat sounding name. If I heard it, like I would just forget it. Yeah, exactly. Could it be? Exactly. Um, but it's a business backed, quote unquote, business backed conservative group. And what they do is they draft these model bills for Congress um, and They've been um, a key player in a lot of different policies that you would not think about um, on a day-to-day, but that have actually significantly impacted supply chains. So one of them being um, the expansion of the prison population through um, this mandatory minimum sentencing laws uh, that they drafted, right, that were um, adopted by different states. Um, There's also... Uh, They also advocated for um, restrictive and harsh immigration policies, like the notorious one in Arizona, SB 1070, um, which makes it a state misdemeanor, so like a state crime, for immigrants to not carry their immigration paperwork on them at all times. Think about that for one second. That is crazy. (laughs) Um, And it allows for a stop or um, arrest with reasonable suspicion that the person um, is undocumented. And it's, I don't know, it just makes my blood boil, but that's, you know, those are the kinds of laws that this lobbying group advocates for. If you make immigration policies more restrictive, and if you have a law in place where you can literally arrest someone on the street on, you know, suspicion of being here as an undocumented immigrant, it's going to make people fearful of going to that state. And therefore, farm workers, for example, are uh, will be in higher demand because they will no longer be going to that state. And when farm workers, migrant farm, farm workers are no longer going to a particular state, where will farmers look? They have labor shortages that need to be met. Um, where do they go? They um, go to the state prison systems, right? And so it leads to these lucrative arrangements between states and corporations. Um, And it's like this insidious kind of, you know, complicated system that's purposefully swept under the rug because um, everyone except for the black and brown folks that are affected by them, right, uh, is, is quote unquote made better. Um, We, it's insidious and gross and it happens every day. um, And we just, yeah, wanted to, to call out things like that just so you're aware um, and just so you can look for it. Um, yeah. I, I was just thinking, based on what you said, this is such a good example of like 
kind of how we introduce this or how you introduce this, which is like, we are all working within a capitalist system, which means if there's cheap labor somewhere, whoever is providing that, then people are going to use that because if you can make your goods for less money, you can make more profit. Um, In fact, you can push out competitors or force competitors to use the same practices that you are because they can't afford to stay in that industry if, you know, if at least one of the competitors is using the cheapest form of labor as possible. So this is very systematic. It's not... It's not, a, it's not as simple as even, you know, saying to a company, just stop doing it. I mean, they can, right. and that would be great, but maybe right. they can't afford to, right? Like maybe yeah. they, because of the system that they are a part of and their competition, they actually cannot pay more in labor or they will just immediately be out of business. Right. Um, and you could say that like, that is the choice that they should make. Like that would be the more ethical decision, but it's, it's really hard to, and like, we'll probably say this so many times, but like, it's really hard to make a perfectly ethical decision as a company operating under capitalism. (laughs) Yeah. It's this crazy race to the bottom. And we understand that it's so hard for companies to make the right call. Um, But hopefully, you know, we as consumers can um, collectively help them also get there. So one of the pieces of this that um, is is interesting, and again, like you know, getting some um, uh, some conversations going um, about this. But when you talk about making like an ethical decision, so whether that's for you, it might be not eating meat anymore, or eating or eating less meat, or uh, where you buy clothes, um, really any decision that the those conversations often do not incorporate kind of who has access or privilege to be able to make those decisions mm-hmm. right like and this you know often falls um across uh you know economic lines for sure as well as you know race but i think food is a really good example right we yeah. we've called it food deserts for a long time sort of a more academically accurate uh, description is food apartheid. I mean, I've been to some small towns where the only option you have is one of these dollar stores. And like, yeah. that's where you get everything, including food. And so I think it is interesting to think about um, just from a consumer side, like how much privilege do you have to even be able to make those decisions? Or what do you have access to within your community and within like, your budget? Yeah, who is able to make decisions, who, who's created the systems in which we are um, living and, and working and, and trying to access food and access, you know, health, right, and all of these things. I wanted to talk about how, for example, indigenous communities in the United States, um, traditionally, they have this relationship with the land with Mother Earth um, and with food that was wholesome and nourishing in a way that was respectful and healing of bodies and nature. But then with colonization and the Native communities were pushed off their lands and forced into places that are now some of the starkest representations of food apartheid, not to mention right the root causes of poverty and historical trauma and all of those things that have happened over generations. 
And meanwhile, while they're struggling to get the nutrition that they need to regain health for their communities, um, foods that were traditional in their diet, right, whether it's chia seeds or, you know, elderberries or what have you, are now being um, sought after and marketed as superfoods, right, by wealthy, privileged folks. And I just think that that's such an that's such an irony and such a roundabout <laughs> way of kind of food injustice that's been happening for for generations. Yeah. And I just wanted to link a couple of things we just said to like you know, future conversations that we're going to have which is you know a lot of these apply globally as well. So, you know, we're we're sitting in the US, we're Americans, um you know, we're talking about what's happening in America right now, but as we'll talk about next week with our supply chains, everything is so inter- interconnected and our global supply chains are not really chains, they're webs. Um, but <laughs> a lot of these issues that we're exactly talking about do affect uh, like marginalized populations globally. So whether that's like, you know, the popularity of quinoa, which is coming out of, you know, South America and decreasing the mm. Um, access to, you know, a traditionally consumed grain there, or, you know, when we're talking about working conditions, whether uh, prison labor or, you know, forced labor or, or just bad, you know, unsafe working conditions, that is kind of the reality of a lot of um, factories and agriculture production and mining worldwide that go into um, our products. And we often don't even think about it. So we'll mm-hmm. we'll dig into that a little bit more next week and try to, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even say we're untangling the web, but like trying to follow <laughs> the strings a little bit to identify like what's even there. So do you think that we've frustrated everybody yet? Like, well, great. So <laughs> I can't buy anything. No. no one's good. There's no such thing as a good company. There's no such thing as like good practice. Um, so what do people do? <laughs> One of my favorite suggestions um, for folks, for myself to think about even, um, is just the power in supporting smaller local businesses, either have practices that you support or, you know, that um, have owners who are, you know, black owned or women owned or what have you. Um, I feel like it's, they are also so much more um, they're so much more accessible and easy to have relationships with, right? Um, they're easier to impact and to work with, right? To, um, yeah, to make sure that they are making the right decisions for, um, for, for you know, for their companies as well. Um, I think, yeah, some, I think one of the reasons why it's also um, kind of important to support smaller local businesses and kind of on our theme of, um, you know, tying this back into the Black Lives Matter movement and um, doing anti-racist work within our own lives. Um, just wanted to bring up some stats that I read the other day. Um, so currently, Black households in the U.S. have one-tenth the median wealth as white households. And there's a perpetual cycle, right, of little to no intergenerational wealth transfer. And this leads to a whole cycle of um, lack of opportunities that perpetuates itself um, as, you know, folks are unable to relocate and, um, you know, go live in places with better school systems, et cetera. Not to mention, of course, the racist government programs and policies throughout 
um, again, throughout generations that prevents certain communities from having access to any of those mechanisms to, to build wealth. So why does that matter? Um, never mind that you know equity and equal opportunity and equal protection and access to resources is the right thing to do with the basic premise that we all share in the same humanity, um, I think, which is the kind of argument that I would have maybe made as um, you know, being the, the human rights, you know, civil rights lawyer that I was in my past life, you know, after I came to business school, I have learned to make economic arguments as well. <laughs> you know, I read this report by the Association for Enterprise Opportunity on Black business ownership in America, and it found that there were more than two and a half million Black-owned businesses in the United States, generating over $150 billion in annual revenue. Um, they support more than three and a half million jobs in the United States. And black business ownership creates wealth much faster than wage employment, as you would imagine, and they tend to hire from their communities. And so economically, it's also the right thing to do because income inequality, A, uh, it's a systemic risks. Um, it also strips people of their potential, which means that labor isn't maximized, which is something that I learned in econ during business school. <laughs> And according to Anna Blanding, who is the Managing Director of Impact Investments at CONCAT, which is a local workforce development organization here in New Haven, she says that if we eliminated the racial wealth gap by 2028, um, there are some estimates that it would contribute to a 4 to 6% increase in the United States GDP. And that is a big deal. And that is a, I feel like that's a great reason to eliminate, to all work together towards eliminating that racial wealth gap by investing in um, local, small, Black-owned businesses. Um, and it seems like the perfect time to be doing this. I mean, I don't know about you, but my sort of consumption habits have completely changed because I live my entire life inside of my apartment wearing sweats. Um, and only going to the grocery store occasionally, which I mean, yes, like there is a reality behind that, which it, clearly like a lot of people are out of work or, you know, making less than they were before this situation. Um, a lot of businesses aren't doing as well because people aren't consuming as much, but I also, at least in my, in my own life have noticed like life has slowed down a little bit. And so I can think a little bit more about where, where I'm shopping, who I'm supporting. I can't get good coffee beans in mm. in the town that I live in. But, you know, that just sort of opens me up to where can I order coffee from? You know, instead of ordering it from Amazon, which we're, we're not here to throw mm. Amazon under the bus. We <laughs> both still use, it's like still order stuff from Amazon. Uh, but maybe there's, like maybe there is a, like black owned company that roasts amazing coffee that I can order from. So I feel like there's kind of simple things like that, that because life is a little slower and we are consuming a little bit less, we maybe have the space to be a bit more mindful about the consuming that we are doing. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Sarah. That's such a great connection between um, the times that we live in and yes, all of the, the crazy and all of the negative impacts on our economy, but also what that means for us um, to have the space to be more mindful and not feel um, overwhelmed. In trying to be kind of productive members of this, you know, mm. broad conversation about what being an ethical consumer means, 
we do want to kind of identify like what are positive opportunities that individuals can take. And so I think that your conversation about, you know, small minority owned businesses is like a huge piece of that. And then the other thing that I would just throw out there is when you're looking at your investments, like what are you invested in? And something that I only really have started to explore recently is supporting community development financial institutions. So Mm -hmm. I think, you know, traditionally when we think about like impact or like, you know, small business funding or like microfinance, we think globally, but we don't really think about what's happening here in the U.S. And if you're an investor who's interested in supporting, you know, your local community, um, looking into investing in CDFIs, community development financial institutions is like a huge opportunity for that. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I love CDFIs. Um, They don't only provide banking um, to, you know, those uh, communities that are underbanked. They also, um, a lot of them do advocacy to change the systems, right? Again, you know, keep coming back to systems and policy. Um, but I feel like CDFIs are really kind of powerful players in getting some harmful um, policies changed as well. Yeah. So I think this is a great opportunity to talk about our own challenges of like ethical consumption. And like a perfect piece is how we got our podcasting equipment. So Song, do you want to tell the story of how you got your podcasting equipment? I would love to talk about that. Oh my goodness. Um, So I haven't been doing too much purchasing as of late, but the one piece of equipment that I absolutely had to get for this podcast was a converter cord for my microphone. And I wanted so badly to make this an intentional purchase so I could come on this podcast and talk about how I did something that wasn't just quick and easy. I didn't just go to Amazon and order the first, the cheapest converter cord that I saw. Um, So I did a little bit of digging. I found an independent retailer and I purchased a cord and I was so excited about it. But unfortunately, it got held up and it took a month for the converter cord to come. It delayed our podcast recording by two. <laughs> and I'm so sorry about that, Sarah. Um, but I tried and I failed. And I I, I wish I didn't have to <laughs> continue my consumption habits of just supporting the easiest Amazon. But, you know, such is life. And, you know, this is, this is just life sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And my story is... I needed a new mic and I went on Amazon and found a mic that could get to me in two days and it arrived in two days. And that was kind of the end of that process. So not (laughs) my most thoughtful purchase, at least as far as where it was coming from. My priorities in that moment were definitely how fast can it get here? So definitely on my own working on how do I kind of reprioritize where it's coming from instead of the expediency that we have come to expect from using Amazon so much. Thank you for listening to Effing Ethical with Song and Sarah. Uh, We would love for you to continue on this journey with us and make this more of a community. So please visit us at songandsarah.com. You can email us at hello at songandsarah.com. And as usual, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts so more people can find us.